I told you last week a little bit about our story, mine and Nancy's story, and I sort of got you up to our wedding day and how we exited the church to take me out to the ball game, and and uh, that was that was good. And and Nancy and I, like anybody, we had some great dreams for what marriage was going to be like, and I'm sure you did too when you got married, if you have been. And 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 yet one thing I think that we sort of forgot is that the, you you need a little bit of money and you probably need a job at some point. When you get married, Nancy and I got married, neither one of us had a job. She had graduated from Murray State. I still had student teaching to do. And, and, and our first home, uh, thankfully, was provided for us by your cooperative program, Giving. Uh, we, we lived at the what was then the BSU, the BCM. There's an apartment down at the bottom of that, if, down in the basement, if you've ever been there. Our first home was 800 Waldrop Drive in the basement of the BCM. We had no money. We had no job. And we had no idea what we were doing or getting ourselves into. But we had a dream that marriage was going to be everything that we ever thought it would be. And maybe you're the same way. Now, our children like to watch now, of course, those same kind of dreams unfold in the Disney movies. You know, in Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or Tangled or any of those princess movies. It's always that the couple throughout, the, you know, they have all these hardships. And finally they come together and they lived happily ever after. That's the dream, I think, that everybody has for marriage. And I'll be honest with you, I think we can be really cynical and laugh at that and say, well, good luck with that. That's not, that's not really what marriage is about. But you know, if that's your dream, if that was your dream, I, I want to encourage you today that I don't think that's wrong to have a dream that truly, in marriage, you just live happily ever after. And you say, oh, come on. But I really believe, I think there's something inside of us that says, you know what? I really do want marriage to, to, to be something that I'm happy in. I don't think that's wrong. <laughs> I think that's okay. You know, some folks are so cynical and jaded now, they just tell any young couple, well, you have no idea what you're getting into. Listen, if, <laughs> if, that's, if that's what you have to say to young people, can I, in a pastoral way, can I just ask you, please be quiet. <laughs> please, just, just don't say anything. Really, they, they don't need to. They'll figure it out on their own. They don't need to hear that before. Now, let's encourage those folks, and I hope to encourage you today, that those dreams are okay to have. They really, really are. The dream that marriage would be great. I believe that dream is based upon God's design for marriage. I think when you look at what God designed marriage to be, it was an incredible experience that He designed for Adam and Eve. If you go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there are several things that you look at and say, here's what God wanted for them in marriage. He wanted them to have some, some meaning and purpose. I don't know if your life is full of meaning and purpose or not, but when Adam and Eve were commissioned to go and fill the earth and to subdue it, what incredible purpose they had from God Himself. This is your plan for your marriage. This is what your marriage is to be about. There was something about marriage that was to give them some kind of meaning and purpose and a sense of adventure that they had something to do, that they mattered. He also gave them extreme pleasure, obviously. He places them in the Garden of Eden. And He surrounds them with all kinds of great things to eat. He puts them together. They were perfect human beings. You realize that? Completely flawless. And so they had emotional and psychological and physical and, and all kinds of different pleasure around them. Marriage was designed originally to bring pleasure, to be something that was pleasing. It was also designed to bring companionship. 
When Adam was created, God, God looked around and said everything was good. And then he said one thing that was not good. What did he say? It is not good for what? For man to be alone. And so he said, I'll create a helper who's suitable for him. I'll make somebody to be the counterpart. He said, I don't want you to be alone, Adam, in this garden. Adam had looked through all the animals, and he found nothing that, that could complete him. That was the, the person, the thing that God wanted. And so God said, all right, go to sleep. And while he's asleep, God performs the first surgery, takes out a rib, carves Eve, and there she is when he wakes up companionship. It's not good for man to be alone, so God gave him someone to walk through life with him. God also created intimacy. It, it, the, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, that the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. They, they're to know one another very, very well in all aspects of life. And not only intimacy with each other, but marriage for them provided intimacy also with God, because God, it says, and Genesis came and walked with them in the cool of the day. Great intimacy. They also had their needs met. Now, guys, I want you to take a note real quick. If you're married, the first thing that Adam uttered when he saw Eve were words of poetry. Now, no pressure here. But tomorrow morning, when you wake up, and there's your wife. Poetry. That's it. That, 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 God ordained it from the very beginning. Poetry. Roses are red. I don't know. what it but, but Adam says, here's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's poetry. Those are the first words of poetry ever uttered. And he looks at her and basically what he says is, you, you correspond to everything I need. You're, you're perfect for me. You're exactly what I need. You realize there's no perfect person. We understand that. But God has designed marriage to be a great complement to who you are and maybe even who you're not. There was also growth to be had in marriage. Genesis 2.24 again tells us that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And nowadays we see that, that, that a couple grows up, they leave their original homes, they come together and they begin to grow a life of their own through which God helps them to become people maybe they couldn't have been otherwise. That's God's design. And I think as a result of that, that's why we have such great dreams for marriage. But we know, you know, and I know that the reality of marriage in today's world is not quite like that, is it? We understand, and I don't have to give you a list of statistics to, to prove to you that marriage is not always the dream that you dreamed. I don't have to give you a list of statistics to prove to you that we're not doing marriage as God designed it in a lot of cases, because you've experienced it. You've seen it. You've gone through it. You've experienced divorce. You've experienced the abuse. You've experienced what it's like to feel just like roommates and no longer truly loving one another. You've experienced that. I don't have to tell you and prove to you that the reality of marriage is, in many cases, far different from the dream and from the design. Why has it gotten there? You ever wonder that? How did we get to this point? where it's so different. Well, we just need to fast forward a tad from that Genesis 2 story to Genesis 3, and we'll find the root cause of it all. Once Adam and Eve were there in the garden, and they saw the tree that God said, please don't eat from this tree. I give you everything else. Don't eat from this one. And they ate from that tree and sinned against God. 
God told them part of the consequences of their sin would be relational difficulties. The husband and wife would jockey for position. They'd have some rivalry there. They, they, they would now be selfish and would, would, want, would want primary relationship outside even of the marriage. They're going to pursue independence. And these old sinful habits, as you well know, follow us into marriage that we have. Satan, of course, himself tries to divide marriages. Sin is the root cause of it all. And in Matthew 19, we saw last week, we'll look again in a moment and we'll see again next week, that what Jesus told the Pharisees is the biggest problem they had in marriage was the hardness of their hearts. They were sinful. And as a result of this sin, society has changed. The view of marriage in society is that it's not a big deal anymore. It really doesn't matter. You can define it, call it however you want to, and it's totally up to you. And unfortunately, in today's world, a permanent, lifelong marriage is the exception to the rule, isn't it? Many of you have experienced that. Such tragedy, such heartbreak. So the reality is that marriage is messed up. And that's frustrating, and it's sad. And I wish it weren't the case. But I believe that if we can look at the dream and we can look at the design, then we can recover what marriage is to be. So my my point today is not to take us real low and say, oh, woe is me. Marriage is awful. Just young people, just don't get married. You'll avoid it all. Let's, Let's not tell them those lies. Instead, let's begin to build stronger marriages as best we can and help our young people understand what it takes to build a strong marriage. So we've got to go back to God's design to figure out how do we recover? How do we get back to what marriage is supposed to be? Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 19, and we'll look in verse 3. Now we saw this last week, we'll look at it this week, we'll look at it again next week as we wrap up the series we've been in called Family Matters, and these three weeks looking at marriage, both before, during, and then potentially for, for many folks, After a marriage, we'll look at divorce and remarriage next week. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees approached him, talking about Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, I mentioned to you last week, let me catch you up. The Pharisees had gotten to the point where if the wife uh, burned the supper, then that was grounds for divorce. All right, ladies, it was a tough, tough deal. Be careful about supper, all right? But seriously, in any case, they could just say, well, I'm not satisfied with her. You've displeased me. Get out of here. And so they're testing Jesus to figure out where he stands on all this. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Man must not separate. Why then? They weren't satisfied here. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers to her and send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We're going back to figure out, here's what Jesus in summation says about marriage. He thinks it's a big, big deal. You see the Pharisees and Jesus on opposite sides of this. The Pharisees didn't want to treat marriage as a big deal because they wanted to be, because of the hardness of their hearts, able to dismiss their wives for any reason at all. 
Now, wouldn't that be convenient? If you're married and the person just doesn't please you, you're out of here. I'm going to go get somebody else. And then a week later, when you find out that person's not perfect, you just get rid of them as well and you move on to somebody else. That's sort of the mentality that the Pharisees had. Now, that seems almost laughable to us. But that was their mentality. And in our world today, maybe it's not so laughable because in a lot of cases, isn't that true? That in many cases, folks who are married simply say, well, I'm not happy anymore. This person doesn't please me anymore. They're not who I thought they were, and so it's time for me to move on. And unfortunately, I have seen not just folks who have been married for longer periods of time finally realizing all of the chinks in the armor, but I have I've seen young people been married for two years or less who have decided, apparently, they say, now, this person's not who I thought they were, and they move on to someone else. It's not quite as laughable as we first think. We in our society can tend to have this mentality. So Jesus, obviously, is the exact opposite. has a very high view of marriage, and He's going to teach us some things. I, I want to give you one principle. If you're thinking about your marriage, and you might be that person who, who as I prayed for this week, God has brought you here because maybe you're struggling a little bit, or maybe you just need some reinfusion of, of God's power in your marriage, and, and you need to be able to be committed again. I want to give you one general principle that you can apply each and every day, and then some applications of that that hopefully this week will help you. When you look at what Jesus is talking about here, and He says that, that God created them in the beginning, man and woman, and, and they are to be one flesh, and you should not divide them. It's interesting to note that really what he's talking about is, is the commitment, the lifelong covenant that's being made between husband and wife that's not to be broken very easily. And so if I could give you one little piece of advice based upon what Jesus has to say, how do you build a strong marriage? How do you build a great marriage? Let me encourage you with this this morning. Renew your vows every single day. Renew your vows every day. I don't know if you've ever been to a vow renewal service before. I remember one at my home church years ago. Lots of couples standing up and, and, and facing one another again, just like they did at the altar when they got married, and reciting or, or repeating some vows back and forth. Now, I've done lots and lots of weddings, and, and each of them has had its own unique aspect. Now, the very first wedding that I did was one in which the, the best man lost the ring. Now, I don't know if I've told you this story before, and if I have, just bear with me. But, but the best man, I, the very, like I said, the very first wedding I've ever done, and the very first wedding for this groom, first one he ever did. <clears throat> We're both nervous. He uh, couldn't get enough water. He kept going back and forth to get drinks of water, and whew, I was just kind of hot and sweaty at that point. I, and so the best man, we get down there at the altar, and we're standing there, all the guys in the line, the best man leans over, and he says, I can't find the ring. And I looked at him, I said, that's funny. He said, really? I can't. I said, oh. So here I am having to figure this out. I said, well, we'll just pretend like we've got a ring. And so I told them, you know, and I'll ask for the rings or whatever. I expected when, when I said, may I have the rings, please, that he would simply put nothing in my hand and we would pretend. But instead, when I say, may I have the rings, please, he places a ring in my hand. It was significantly larger than the one that I expected the bride to be wearing. So I hold out the ring for the bride and groom, and you should have seen the look on her face, which was much more, much more surprised than mine. She was shocked and basically said, that's not my ring. It's okay, just go with it. 
And so after the wedding, they search and search and search. And as it turns out, we had gotten the ring from the one guy in the, the bridal party who was married, who happened to be on the far end, and they passed his ring behind their backs. And that's what I used. They searched and searched for her ring and eventually found it in the lining of the best man's jacket. How about that one? I've had some interesting weddings. I did a wedding not long ago where the bride and groom, it was on a golf course, and the bride and groom, literally on the golf course in the rough of the 18th hole, and, and the bride and groom were, were going to do a knot tying ceremony. You've seen unity candles, and you've seen unity sand, and maybe you've seen this, this deal where they actually tie a literal knot, symbolizing that they are uniting their lives together. And so the, the DJ who was playing the music did not have power out by on the golf course. He could not bring his, his speakers there. So he was about 100 yards toward the clubhouse and was trying to watch and see when to play the music. And so the wedding gets going and, and the music that had been played for the bridal entrance doesn't stop. I had no microphone and I'm shouting, literally shouting to the folks in the back row, a couple hundred people there, on this golf course, any minute thinking that a plane is going to fly over because we're in the, 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 uh, the landing zone for Stanford Field there in Louisville, or a train is going to go by because there's a major depot right next to us. And so here we are in this golf course. None of that happened, but the music didn't stop. And it's sort of loud. And I didn't know what to do. Finally, the lady who's in charge of the, the wedding coordination, she runs back, the music stops, and they go through the ceremony. Later on, I find out that the bride had told the DJ, while we're tying the knot, play the music. His interpretation of that was, okay, you're tying the knot, I suppose. I'll play the music through the whole ceremony. So I've done several weddings that have very unique and often funny. And I always tell the bride and groom, I said, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen that you'll remember. It's going to be unique. And it may be funny. It may not be. It may be emotional or touching. But something's going to happen. But I'll tell you this. The one thing, of course, that always happens is they exchange vows. And I've had folks who have written their own vows and read them to each other. I've had folks who say, I don't even know where to start with that. Can you please give us a guide? And, and, and always they repeat vows to one another. They promise this and that and to be these things and so on. Till death do us part. Or as long as we both shall live. Well, however they, they word it. Vows are always a part of that. And I believe that the marriages that are the strongest don't just take those vows seriously on the wedding day, but they take them seriously every day. And they renew those vows in their hearts over and over and over. I'm not saying this week that every single day you should get up and before you do anything else, stand there in your bedroom and renew your vows to one another in a formal sense. Maybe that'll work for you. I don't know. You want to give it a shot, that's fine. But I really believe that Jesus gives us such a high view of marriage, such a high view of the covenant that we could do very well for our marriages to renew our vows every single day. Now, how do you go about doing that? Let me give you some things from what Jesus is talking about here that I think will help you for some points of application. First of all, if you're going to renew your vows this week, make it first on your to-do list. Make it first on your to-do list. Now, some of you are, are OCD when it comes to to-do lists. If it's not on your list, it's not getting done. 
Because if it's in your mind, you're going to forget it. That's why you wrote it down in the first place. So if you want to build a great marriage and you want to have those vows and your covenant means something to you, I would strongly encourage you, yes, write it down. Put it on your to-do list. Now, some of you look at people like that and say, ah, I got this. It's all up here. All right, so however you're going to do it, if you think you're smart enough to remember it, then go for it. Make it first on your to-do list. Look at verse 4. Haven't you read, he said, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? Jesus talking about way back in Genesis the way that marriage was designed to be. In the beginning, marriage was to be primary. It was to be first on the to-do list. You realize marriage came before any other institution. This is before government, it's before schools, it's before anything. Marriage was established. God thinks it's that important. He didn't set up government or schools and then get marriage involved. He set up marriage as to be the foundation of society. Period. Plain and simple. And when marriage begins to disintegrate in society, so does that society. We've seen it. Marriage is to be first on our to-do list. It also, just for those who may need a reminder or permission from the pastor, it came before kids. Which means, tell your kids, mom and dad are more important. Our relationship matters more. Now they're going to be shocked. They're going to fall on the ground. They're going to throw fits. They're not going to like it. But let me tell you this, if you don't place your marriage relationship at the top of your list, one day when the kids are gone, your marriage relationship will fall apart. Why? Because you didn't build your marriage, you viewed everything else as more important. And we've seen that, haven't we? Some now are probably experiencing that. That the kids are grown and they're gone, or they, they, they're not exactly in your home like they once were. Or maybe they're back eating all your food again. I don't know what, what they're doing. But, but you've seen all, oh, we didn't make our marriage a priority. And now we've got a lot of work to do. Realize that marriage preceded sin. It was created before sin entered the world. It preceded kids. It preceded work. It preceded extended family. All of those things. And so marriage must be first on your to-do list. So here's something to do this week. This week... In order to, to say, all right, I'm, I'm going to give this some teeth. This is going to matter. First on my to-do list, I will give what my spouse needs most. Uh, to top your to-do list. All right, I've got this to do, this to do. Put this, I will give what my spouse needs most. Now, Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. And I, I've listed some things here that, that you'll see that he, he lists as potential love languages, meaning that this is how your spouse best receives or feels loved in your relationship. So time may be one of them. You may need to give time this week. That may not be something that matters to you. Let me tell you this. If you and your spouse aren't speaking that same love language as he says, you're going to have a little bit of work to do this week. Because if one person wants lots of time and the other person just wants, uh, say, a, an act of service, then you're going to miss each other. This is why you focus on what your spouse needs, not on what you need. So give what your spouse needs most. If your spouse needs time, give some time this week. If your spouse needs words of encouragement or words of love, then do that however you can, whether it's verbally or written or however. If your spouse receives love and they feel really loved when they are given something, that doesn't mean they're selfish. That just means that's how they receive love. So figure out a way to give a gift of some sort. 
Maybe it's service and they just your spouse just loves when you do something for them or something that they would have had to do and now they don't have to do it. Or maybe it's touch. And maybe for a long time it's just been that you haven't put your arm around your spouse or given them a hug or a kiss. Give what your spouse needs most. That will help you make it first on your to-do list. Secondly, let me encourage you to remember to stay friends. Remember to stay friends. Verse 5 says this, He also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is obviously a reference to physical one flesh, but it's also a holistic approach, a unity in marriage that includes companionship. And from the beginning, as we've already seen, marriage provided companionship. It's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to give him somebody to fill this gap in his life. And so the relationship of husband and wife in the Bible is defined in terms of closeness and enjoyment of being together, being unified in thoughts and goals and plans and efforts and all of those things. It was to be more than sitting in front of a television over and over each and every night and just sort of being there. Now for some, that kind of time is a great love language. Don't let me, don't let me rain on your parade. But at the same time, it's easy for our relationships to devolve into something like that. Marriage was intended to bring companionship and to be good. And I'll say this, it's okay to be friends with your spouse. You say, well, I don't want to be more than friends. Okay, that's great, but make sure that you stay friends. Well, I love this person, but I sure don't like them much. That doesn't even make sense. How can you love somebody, truly love them, if you don't like them, if you're not friends with them? And young people, let me tell you this real quick. I want to encourage you to refuse to date or fall in love with someone you wouldn't be friends with. And I really mean that. You may say, well, what are you talking about? Don't become so infatuated with what somebody looks like or their persona or their image that you look past the fact, you know what, what's this person really like? Would I even be friends with them? I mean, would I enjoy their company or would I just infatuated with what they look like and what they make me feel like? Remain friends. How do you do that? Well, I, I think for some this morning, maybe, maybe, maybe we just need to repent of our selfishness. You know, it's so easy. Isn't, isn't that, uh, to me, now, now y'all may be more spiritual than me, but one of the biggest barriers to me to having a great marriage with my wife is my own selfishness. It is. I just want to do what I want to do, whenever it is that I want to do. Now, I'm human. Now, Nancy and I have been married 14 and a half years. So long enough to where we understand one another pretty well. And long enough also to where we just, oh, goodness, I just want to be by myself. Leave me alone. Nancy especially. I would, whew, she's with kids all the time. And sometimes my own selfishness gets in the way of, of being friends with her and just doing for her what she needs to have done. Sometimes we just need to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my selfishness. And go to your spouse and say, I apologize. I've been extremely self-focused. Maybe it is that you just need to talk about more than the weather this week with your spouse. And, and maybe get out of your routine a little bit and do something a little different. Or maybe you, you would say, you know, this week I'm just going to curb my habits just a little bit. My hobbies are taking too much of my time. This week, let me encourage you with this. Share an experience together. We will share an experience together, something we would both enjoy. 
I've made the underlying word there, we, for a reason. And then something that we would both enjoy. Now, this may require two different experiences. Start there. Well, she likes this, but I like that. All right, fine. Then you got two things to do this week. Maybe you don't both enjoy the same things. But if you want to remain friends, think about what friends do. They do things together. They seem to find ways to talk about things that are more than just what happened in the news or whatever. They, they do things to they share experiences together. This may be hard work for you this week. I know it's hard work in our home. We have four little kids who are involved in a lot of their own experiences, and it's tough. You may be to the point where you're not sure you want to be friends with your spouse anymore. (laughs) They've driven you to the point of borderline insanity or beyond, and you say, I don't want to share any experiences with them. I just soon not see them this week. And I say that half tongue-in-cheek, but also halfway realizing that may be true. So as best you can, share an experience that both of you would enjoy this week. So remain friends. Stay friends. Be united together, not just in a covenant sense, but let that covenant infiltrate everything and make you friends. And then thirdly, never take a day off. Never take a day off. Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then what you've heard at weddings over and over, therefore what God has joined together, man must not separate. Do you realize that marriages dissolve and devolve one day at a time? That's the way it happens. Most marriages don't all of a sudden, out of nowhere, end. Some do, most don't. It's over time that things begin to leak. So never take a day off. In the beginning, marriage was to be permanent. Let no one separate. It's not about some temporary deal. Jesus never hinted toward that at all. Well, give it some time and see what happens, and if you don't like that, then move on. That's not the way that He looked at it. It was established as an eternal covenant before God, broken only by death. That's the idea. So never take a day off. Be true to the covenant, to the vows, to the promises that you have made each and every single day. Let me tell you this. You realize that no difference that you have with your spouse is irreconcilable when Jesus is at the center of your marriage. There is no difference that's irreconcilable. In fact, even when, and I'll get to more of this next week when we talk about divorce and remarriage, But even when there has been infidelity in a marriage, there is still the possibility of healing and restoration because of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection on the cross. I'll get to more of that next week. But there is still possibility of that. There is no guarantee. Some of you have been through that. Some of you have tried and tried and tried. But Jesus is the only one who can keep your marriage strong and can restore it when it's been broken. We'll get to more of that next week. I'd encourage you, if you've been through divorce, if you've got folks in your family who have, which of course that touches all of us, I'd encourage you to come next week. I'm not going to make you feel like you have to wear a scarlet letter. I'll promise you that. Guarantee you that. That's not going to be the focus of next week's message. But hopefully next week you'll get some healing. You'll begin to to move forward. 
And we'll stand on God's truth all at the same time. But if you want to build a strong marriage, let me encourage you, never take a day off. Some of you even now could say, you know what, I look back and I realize that it was just day after day of just sort of letting things go. So this week, I will treat today as if it is the last that I have with my spouse. I will treat today, each and every day, as if it's the last I will have with my spouse. I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel morbid. I'm not trying to put thoughts into your mind. Well, what's he trying to say? Does he know something I don't know? That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is, what kind of revolutionary nature would that have in your marriage if you said, you know what, I'm, just today, I'm going to view today, I'm going to operate today as if this is the last one I have. And then when I get up tomorrow, Lord willing, I will operate then as if it's the last day that I ever have. Imagine the difference it would make in your marriage. It would get us closer, I think, to that dream that we've had and get us closer to the, the, the design that God wants for marriage. You may say to all of this, I can't, I can't do that. It, it, it's just not in me to do this. It, it, it's too far gone. I don't, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't feel like I've, I've got it. Let me tell you this. God can help you do the things that maybe you don't even want to do. And maybe you simply need Him to intervene today in your marriage. And for some, you just need to be humble enough to say, that's me. <laughs> That's us. We just need God to intervene because without His help, without His changing our hearts, we're done. And it's going to explode. And it's going to destroy our family. So maybe you just need God to intervene. I'll tell you this, the Lord cannot be the centerpiece of your marriage that He needs to be unless you address the core issue, which is, is Jesus Christ the centerpiece of your life? Because unless He is the centerpiece of your life, you've come to faith in Him, repenting of your sins, accepting His free gift of salvation. Unless that's the case, and I have to be honest with you, you're on your own in marriage. He's not there in your marriage. He is not the centerpiece. You don't have the power of God in your marriage unless you know Jesus Christ personally. But when you do, then marriage is completely different. He can't be the centerpiece of your marriage unless He's the centerpiece of of your life. And for some here this morning, our marriage problems are the root of a different problem, and that is the absence of Jesus in your life. We're going to take this morning what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper. And I think it's appropriate to do that on a day when we talk about marriage because Paul himself, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, gives us the idea that the relationship that Jesus has with His people is like a husband is to have with his wife, who sacrifices and lays down his life. And in return, the relationship that, that the people of Jesus are to have with Him is similar to the relationship a wife is to have with her husband, one of respect and love. And so this morning, we're going to get a very clear picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross, allowing His body to be broken, and His blood to be shed and poured out so that we might be forgiven. He gave up Himself for us. And maybe, just maybe, in this, as you receive the gift that Jesus offers you, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of new life, and as we symbolically take that to remind ourselves again, maybe this morning, you'd say, you know what? 
I want to be like that in my marriage. I want my marriage to be strong. I want to renew my vows this morning, both to my spouse and ultimately to my Lord. And so as we distribute this in just a moment, I encourage you, really do, if you need some time to pray, if you want to say to, to your spouse, look, we've got to, we've got to pray. We've got to, to ask God to intervene. You can do that right there at, at your seat, and that's fine. I'm not going to embarrass you intentionally. Or you may want to come and kneel here and pray. Maybe have somebody come, in with, come with you and pray for you. But as we distribute this, my encouragement to you is to do business with God. What is He calling you to this morning? What's He calling you to repent of and to turn from? And is He calling you to place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning? I believe He is. I'm going to ask our deacons if you would, and Jan's going to play. If you guys would come and we'll distribute this. And If you're not a member of our church, please don't let that stop you from participating this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have surrendered your life to Him, then we offer to you this morning a reminder of what He has done. A reminder symbolically that we will take a cracker and some juice, symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as the people of God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we encourage you to take this and to eat and drink. We'll do that together as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. So as I said, if you're not a member of our church, please don't let that stop you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, part of the family of God, we invite you to participate this morning. Our deacons will hand that out. We'll take the cracker first. Hang on to that. I'll come and read a scripture. I'll pray. We'll take that together. And then we'll hand out the juice after that, and we'll do the same.